Hello, everybody. Welcome to another three articles of Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. If I don't say that, uh, the other guys get mad. So I'm, I'm going to repeat it. It's the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. And this is the three articles. We discuss three articles. We each bring one and discuss them. It's Sunday, the 20th of June. You'll be hearing this probably at the beginning of July, but our articles are, if not timeless, then things which will still be very relevant by the time you're hearing this. Uh, so the first one is George's. George, go ahead. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for that intro as well. You really nailed the uh, <clears throat> podcast tagline, I thought. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've mainly been reading about football, actually. So I was I was going to go for a, a piece which is about Francesco Totti playing in the Roman eight-a-side league, but I can already oh, nice. see Phil's um, eyes glazing, glazing over He's thinking, Kisena Frega. But anyway, um, so what I wanted to do, my the article that I wanted to choose was is from Substack, the uh, the hated um, Twitter alternative, and specifically Angela Nagel's Substack. And it's the article, Did Populism Start a 21st Century Anti-Clerical Revolution? Which is from June the 13th. And you can get this by going to angelanagel.substack.com. Um, and the subtitle, Exposed by the Fight Against Populism, the 20th Century Secular Clerisy Have Made New Enemies. So, yeah, I thought this was a really interesting, really good piece. Um, I'd been listening to the audiobook of Joel Kotkin's The Coming of Neo-Feudalism while on my state-permitted <laughs> uh, walks in the past um, past few months. Actually, you know, more like six months ago now. Um and yeah, I, th- I thought this, I, this, this, the parts on the clerisy were some of the best in in that book, and I think it's definitely a concept that's worth worth talking about, particularly in the context of some of the discussions about PMC or petty bourgeoisie or whatever that we've been that we've been having. Um, really? And Angela's thesis. I thought I thought Brazilianization is a much better concept to capture, like what's going on, rather than neo feudalism, George. Mm, but okay. yes, exactly. that, that I mean, that Brazilianization piece in American Affairs is a ten-minute read, mate. You can read it. You can easily read it in ten minutes. True, um, true. But I wanted to 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 expand the net, if that's the right phrase, a little bit and um, beyond just things that that we ourselves had written. Um, yeah, so Andrew's thesis in this is that the notion of the clerisy is the clearest way to understand the, quote, simultaneous class and culture war of populism, defined as a, quote, a vast secular moral teaching class created in the 20th century who accrue power, set the terms of moral virtue and prestige, and parasite existing wealth through producing and maintaining ideology. So, yeah, safe to say, <laughs> Andrew's not a fan, um, but the... I think the um, the idea here is that pop- the explanation is that populism is a response to um, the clerisy. It's those who are subject to the clerisy's rules um, and attacks the three main institutions of the clerisy, academia, NGO sector, and the media. We can debate whether this is actually true or not. I think Michael Lynn, for example, has a bit of a different reading. Um, and so her understanding of left populism, so the Corbyn, Sanders, etc. movements is that they quickly became filled with clerics, their values, and also their collective self-enrichment and power strategies, which the anti-clerical public bitterly resent. So, yeah, there's, there's I mean, there's, there's quite a lot more to, to to talk about here. So I'll just go through really briefly what I think some of the the main arguments are, and then we can, you know, we can I can bring it bring you guys in, and we can have a we can have a chat about it. Um, so she sees the foundations of the clerisy basically established in the in the 70s, particularly the ideological foundations, 
through feminism, youth culture, globalization, identity politics, multiculturalism, sexual freedom, the technocratic application of science as a solution to social ills and so on. Um, and then there's been a vast growth in this group uh, of this social stratum um, since the 70s, particularly in academia and NGOs. And she cites um, this figure that there's over 1.5 million NGOs in the US today and 10 million globally, which is quite a lot. Um, and she sees, and I think this is an interesting point, that the battle against populism was self-exposing for the clerisy. So this kind of populist response to their economic, cultural, political power um, served to further undermine trust in the characteristic institutions of the uh, clerisy and newspapers and academic titles, all these sorts of things. Um, and then the, I think that the sort of the conclusion is that if the clerisy don't serve this, this bourgeois need to constantly revolutionize production and society, then the capitalist class may pull the plug on them, as Angela puts it. Um, so there's a, there's a question here of like, are this, is the clerisy essentially an obsolete, a historically obsolete class, which is hanging on by its fingernails to, to the sinecures and the, um, the material benefits that it's able to extract through its clerical role, um, and is there a revolutionary or a progressive um, bourgeoisie today that's prepared to kind of to 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 do that plug pulling um, and to have a project in advance of the clerisy without the kind of dynamic making threat of an organised working class? So I, I mean that's that's I get think probably me reading a little bit into the conclusion there, but I do think that that's the the, the final point is is about you know what is the role of the clerisy if if you assume that class struggle is the, the the motor of society and that the um the bourgeoisie are going to be looking to be progressive and the clerisy are not um historically progressive they're a historically obsolete class so quite a lot of food for thought there what did you guys make of it i suppose i mean i it's a new i mean i guess it's a rehashing essentially the pmc debate um, with a different kind of term. And so Angela is trying to reframe it by using a term from kind of uh, the 19th century and linking it to um, linking it to some of those kind of earlier conflicts. And it gives a different historic perspective. I mean, I suppose the point isn't the point that their influence partly speaks to the end of class politics. Um, you know, so the very fact that there is no kind of organized labor movement and correspondingly that the institutions of you know that or that the capitalist class itself is um, correspondingly weakened and more fragmented and it's in that particular context that you have this um, in kind of expanding into the vacuum that you have all of these um, subsidized institutions universities NGOs mm. think tanks what have you that have how do you how do you how do you reckon because I mean I don't see it that way but i see that it, the growth of the clerisy more as a product of post-growth capitalism of rent-seeking financialized capitalism where there's money sloshing about which can't find productive investment no sure or, i think goes I mean, towards foundations NGOs. yeah and i think so that on. i think yeah i mean that i think would fit with it but i mean i don't i don't know that there is kind of um you know the idea that there is a kind of a highly organized capitalist class um, that there are, you know, there are certainly kind of tremendously wealthy and powerful oligarchs, but I don't know that, you know, the chambers, the chambers of commerce and business associations 
um, are as well organized or as coherent in their outlook as they would have been in the past in terms of what they're looking for, their political interests and the way in which they articulate them to the population at large. And so I think given that, I think, you know, the PMC, the clerisy have essentially, so I think it's a symptom of um, the influence of the clerisy, the PMC, whatever you want to call it, I think is a symptom of the um, disorganization of class politics. Um, and I think Angela's right to focus on the NGOs as an important part of that, because perhaps too often we just take it as kind of academics and hipster, urban hipsters who live in kind of, um, you know, uh, urban in kind of major urban centers. The NGOs, I think, are a very important part of it um, and probably have to, you know, overlooked and we should talk about them more. I think there's a thing about the, I, I think there's, as George recognized, you know, an overlap between this, the PMC discussion, or even what is, are called like left liberals, and, but they're different things. And I think clarity is useful because it's a little bit more specific in referring to those who perform an ideological role. And the discussion about the PMC seems to, like at least the Aaron Rice, as the way the Aaron Rice put it, they say the PMC is responsible for the reproduction of capitalism and also performing an ideological legitimatory role for capitalism. But not. But I think that the PMC is much broader than than just that, whereas the clerisy specifically are those people who deal in ideas and the moral governance of society. And so that's a bit more specific, and I think it's a little bit harder to, it's a little bit of a yeah, I don't know what you put it like something a little bit more concrete, basically, you know what you're dealing with here. And so I, I like it more as a term. Yeah, no, I, th I think I think the one of the the reasons why you might like the term clerisy is that there is a um, it really points to what 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 is the function of this group um, within wider society that they legitimate a very um a form of society that's very beneficial to the to the lords and they keep the they keep the serfs in line and the strategies through which they do that might have changed religion not really being the cohering force of society anymore but they have other they have other tools at their at considerable disposal and i think that that's you know that's one argument um in favor of the term and you know that pmc doesn't necessarily have i mean pmc i think is I use that in in common, you know, in kind of like everyday conversation to, to describe my the people I hate, but also, you know, myself um, as well to a certain extent. Because it's like that's the cultural. You hate yourself. You know, you hate yourself. Oh. Self-hating PMC. But the re yeah, I mean, like this is, you know, the reality is this is the kind of um, most most political podcasters. <laughs> To their shame, to their eternal shame, probably fall within this within this kind of cultural. No, you're um, just speaking for yourself stratum. now, George. Anyhow, the yeah, I mean that's what clarity does, right? Is that it's a it's a um, it focuses really on that on that ideological and sort of system legitimating function, um, which <clears throat> the PMC, you know, doesn't necessarily just point in that direction. But I think there's something else which Angela does in this, which is important, is historicize. The clerisy or this section of society which is responsible for um, maybe creating ideas to put it in the most general sense and, th and that you know applies to science journalism academia even maybe so certain wings of social services uh, which is that previously I think maybe in the kind of um, high point of the you know capitalist golden age you had this middle class which was in not necessarily friends of friends of the workers necessarily but 
militated in interests of professionalism, of rationality, um, of ethics, etc., and 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 indeed of science, right? Um, but whereas today it's so um, it's somehow been perverted into often defending things which are being kind of anti-science. Um, and you can see this with, I think she pulls out the example, with the way that the clerisy has effectively gaslit the, 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 the most of us, you know, the majority of us, um, by, for example, saying, you know, the lab leak theory of, for the origins of the new coronavirus was completely nonsense. It was a conspiracy theory. It was a Trumpist talking point. And now uh, liberals, both Biden, uh, you know, at the kind of political level, but also kind of in the more in, in the media where he had John Stewart um, pushing the idea, now legitimating the idea. And so you're basically calling people stupid or crazy because, you know, they're, they're saying one thing one day and another the next day and pretending anybody who held um, contrary views before was completely insane or evil. Um, and so I think that's what's changed. And that's what I guess is important, which is the way that the clerisy has become kind of unmoored from what it should, what, what it ostensibly is in, in favor of, which is open debate, free speech, uh, the impartial pursuit of truth, uh, whereas now it's uh, become so defensive and so conservative in sense of defending the status quo that uh, it'll pervert and play with notions of truth and abandon notions of truth. Mm. It's something that we talk about in terms of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. It's not conservative, it's reactionary. I mean, I think it's really, it's important to to say that the high liberal values of of kind of science and free speech and all these sorts of things are not the animating ideas um, of this you know of this group at all. I mean, and that's you know who's who's going to stick up for for bourgeois rights? We we do still we do still need them in order to go beyond them, and it's you know it leads to a very um, <laughs> a very surprising kind of set of political positions. Um, when you don't have the kind of a sensible kind of ideology producers, even having that kind of basic faith in the sorts of things which they produce in, in terms of um, giving a, a, an importance to free speech, which to a certain extent is is part of the basis of their power. It seems to me like the this group is very contradictory and almost self-undermining. Like there has to be a, a point at which the the reactionary core to the to the sorts of ideas that they're putting forward um comes through and and starts to to show its to show itself um i mean but ultimately the that this isn't the, the point that, that angela makes instead she says that there's there's a, a, a number of different multiple class factions lining up against the clerisy's reactionary attempts to hold on to their power and i think you know obviously that's that's going to be the the immediate well that's going to be the the way that the clerisy we'd assume um gets overturned is is a class of material interests if that can be you know politicized and organized around which of course it already has been to a certain extent so i, I there's i think one other thing i wanted to pick out which is the political dimension to it which is that populism attacks the clerisy and attack and it focuses on the clerisy above all which is something you said in your introduction george which is uh, important and uh, it's something that actually we argue in the 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 bunga book uh, that you know it's left liberals who are most clearly identified with the state and especially with the state and its kind of ideological functions and as a consequence that's why it's most hated and I think a lot of uh, those in kind of left populism uh, didn't didn't recognize this and 
keep seeing themselves as the good guys. You know, we want to be seen as the good guys. Um, but what they see as the good guys are the people going out and doing the moral work effectively, which people hate. It's wide, it's it's widely hated. And in fact, there was a furore in in in, in England, like was it two years ago when um when um a tra- like a trade unionist argued that people you know people hate left liberals and with good reason and of course all the left liberals uh, and sections of whom are part of the clerisy uh, were outraged and saying how can you possibly justify you're just justifying a right wing talking point this is just fascism of you know at its uh, at the extremes you know and uh, and and this is the problem that I think the clerisy are identified as being the good guys and not with effectively apparatchiks of uh, the ruling class. And in being so, we should be much more opposed to them. I think there is one thing, though, and this is where I think we would always kind of like to be careful, is that you'd want to defend science, you'd want to defend rationality, uh, the role that journalism, independent journalism could play, should play, the role Ooh, of research and academia. Careful. J- j- journalism and, and science maybe no, need no, to but, be but, distinguished. <laughs> No, no, but no, but I mean, but reporting, right? Just factual reporting is, is something that's important for civic discourse, right? It's not something you can get past. Um, and even social services are important. But the problem is, is the defense of them often takes uh, the form of def- the defense of those institutions as they exist. So defending academia and academics today, defending journalism or journalists uh, or channels or, or, or media, defending science at all costs or whatever they define science as, which itself is an extremely politicized way of perceiving it. So I think this is what is so tricky, and I think in our current moment, which is that you've got this revolt against these institutions of science, academia, media, and so on, against the clerisy. Um, and you would want to go along with that, absolutely. But without, th- you know, you wouldn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? And I think that that's that's where some of these debates become so vexed because no, should, often they exactly. take, the pl- take the form of conspiracy theorizing, for example, which you wouldn't want to then endorse. No, you want to you want to throw out the bathwater and keep the baby. I mean, this is this is seems to me like a very obvious point. Why why would you throw out the baby? That's not that's not what you want to do. I mean, actually, the reason why I wanted to why I particularly wanted to do this this article is that I think the you know this is it's like the 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 attempt to kind of do class analysis and identify this group which you know we've we've talked about a lot in various different ways of of kind of naming it and talk about you know what are its interests how does it reproduce itself and how does it act politically or collectively you know there's that that's the basic starting point of a marxist analysis and i think that's you know that hasn't there's been surprising little kind of of that materialist analysis um from the quote-unquote left um in the in the past few years so it's you know it's, it's something which we should we should we should get back to more more marxism i would say Okay, let's move on to the next article. Uh, this is Phil uh, introducing an interview with Wolfgang Strieck, another previous guest of ours. Yeah, so it's Wolfgang Strieck on the EU's war in Africa, so-called, um, which is to say the kind of forever war effectively that um, France in particular, but also other EU countries are fighting in the Sahel, so kind of the Northwest, um, Sahara, Libya, Mali, Central African Republic, Chad, all these countries more or less corresponding to the old um, French colonial empire in Northwest Africa. 
Um, and this is kind of a, you know, while the US is withdrawing from Afghanistan and uh, winding down or seeking to wind down some of the major theatres of its own forever war, um, the European Union seems to be extending. I mean, what's remarkable about it, I suppose, is um, given the fact that Streak is an industrial sociologist, what's great about it is um, how attentive he is to the dynamics of geopolitics. And in this case, it's particularly the relationship between um, France and Germany, um, how they relate to a Russia that is more um, assertive of its interests, and how they deal with the fact of um, America's kind of uh, trying to restructure its own relationship with um, with uh, Europe. Um, the fact the French kind of have an interest in developing a developing Europe as an independent um, as a kind of independent superpower, effectively. Um, and they know that they can kind of lead this by virtue of their seat on the permanent uh, permanent seat on the Security Council of the UN and the fact they have nuclear weapons. And at the same time, the Germans kind of the German ruling elite ruling class know that they can only kind of advance their own interests in this kind of form of international partnership. Um, this deal essentially with the French, because anything that is too kind of self-evidently uh, nationalistic immediately fails for the Germans. And so it's a very um, careful and attentive piece to the dynamics of this kind of partnership. The French need the German economy and the German and the Germans need the cover provided by the French. Um, and at the same time, there's all sorts of tensions which come through it. And so it just, it's, uh, I think it's useful to be reminded, like I say, of Europe's forever war. And also what's particularly important, I think, is um, how attentive Streak is to the dynamics of economic growth and how they tie to geopolitics. So he makes a very important point, which is that if Germany even committed or even kind of came close to committing to uh, the defense spending, the 2% of uh, GDP defense spending that they're mandated to do through NATO, Germany immediately has the most powerful kind of conventional forces in Europe, stronger than Russia's. Um, and when that happens, Russia's inevitably forced to kind of fall back on its nuclear weapons as um, the basis of its strength, because economically it can't compete with the strength of the German economy. And so those, and you know, then that means then if uh, Russia becomes kind of more uh, uh, kind of assertive with respect to its nuclear power and more willing to kind of um, kind of uh, flourish, I suppose, its nuclear weapons, then that produces kind of knock-on effects subsequently as well. And all of these dynamics are very kind of um, precisely captured. So I used uh, Streak's analysis of these Franco-German dynamics in European military politics and strategy in my book, The New 20 Years Crisis, and I think it's an excellent take. But presumably you didn't use this interview because this interview postdates your book. Or did you just predict that he would say exactly these things and just, you know, just cite it in advance? No, but he's, uh, it's, I mean, it's points that Streak is uh, an argument that Streak has um, kind of, that he's made elsewhere and that he's developing further. Um, so... Interview. Yeah. So I think this is like, it was nice actually to read a piece which was just pure geopolitical calculus. Although, as you say, he brings in kind of economic factors, but um, it's kind of nice, kind of nice. You something you rarely read, I think, something which is just cold and not from the perspective of, because you sometimes read it from like American strategists from the perspective of maintaining US power or something. But yeah. this is. But and this is, they also tend to be more deeply moralized. And so it's yeah, interesting yeah. just to kind of read it in terms of, um, you know, the growth dynamics of growth and the kind of um, interest calculations made by various governments and ruling elites. 
you know it was kind so, of like game game theory it was almost time for some game theory but instead <laughs> it was actually written like a normal well as an interview so like a normal person would would talk about some of these you know some of these real politic factors so one point that i found fascinating in this was or actually one which is just a fact and then how street uses that to to develop this whole argument around fact what, a fact uh, that soon russia will spend less on military on this military than Germany will, which is uh, remarkable, right? The, 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 and I think the kind of uh, Cold War superpower uh, compared to the power which was completely forcibly disarmed as, as, a, as the cost of its entry uh, into the, the Western sphere. Um, and, and, you know, like you have a complete inversion there. Why? Why is it, then do you have so much pressure on Russia by the US? You know, it seems, completely irrational uh, because if it's such a weak power which isn't even spending as much as one of the US's weaker allies I guess and you know in terms of at least France being a nuclear armed power um, why is the US antagonizing Russia so much and Strick has a very convincing answer I think for this which is that amping up pressure on Russia increases a sense of conflict which binds European powers ever more tightly to NATO um, and th- I mean, this is something that, of course, the Democrats do more than at least the Trumpian Republicans, which is an important point, which I guess we'll we'll come to. It's um, a really good point. Yeah. And and so that 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 fact, it like you you see then the sort of geopolitical uh, reason, I guess, behind it, which is for, for something which otherwise seems completely irrational um, or counterproductive. I, mean, I think it does have irrational elements, but sure. there is also a calculus, like Streak says that it's a way of maintaining American leadership in Europe, essentially, is by bigging up the Russian threat. Um, and also it allows, you know, the Americans to play off East Europeans who have, um, you know, kind of uh, close historic memories of Russian oppression against um, Western Europe for whom, um, you know, Russian, the threat posed by Russia is uh, more distant. So, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense from that point of view, and it's something which is frequently overlooked. And I think it's well worth kind of stressing. Yeah. yeah, there's a flip side to this, which is, as I just mentioned, that in a Trumpian moment where the U.S. wants to withdraw or make NATO pay, you know, its NATO allies pay for defense themselves, basically, in some ways, remove the the kind of overwhelming U.S. umbrella over Europe, um, that that actually suits France because France is waiting for this next Trumpian moment to assume European hegemony, uh, said argues Strake, and it argues, I think, very convincingly. Um, so anyway, I, I was kind of not really aware of this dynamic of this kind of push and pull and three-way kind of relationship, or maybe even four-way between US, Russia, Germany, and France, and how actually that plays out. And it ties in, just to say, so it ties into the Sahel because the Germans are kind of deploying um, troops to France's operations there under the guise of the European Union. And he makes the point that technically the German kind of forces deplo- deplo- deployed there are kind of training, you know, specialists and so on. But there is very little coverage in the German press of what they're actually doing and whether or not they're, that if, you know, if uh, if we knew more about what the German forces were doing, whether or not they violate Germany's kind of constitutional obligations to um, be strictly kind of devoted to self-defense. So 
the re you know this kind of constant slow remilitarization of germany's um, national interest and the way in which it's being done kind of counterintuitively through this partnership with france in a war which only really matters to france you know far more than it matters to germany is um again kind of a very it's a very careful and insightful reading of what on the surface would seem to be otherwise very puzzling um a very puzzling foreign policy and politics yeah, I think it's it's another bit of evidence for Strake being the number one intellectual right now, as you might as you might want to put it. Um, that like, I mean, just starting from some of the <laughs> some of these kind of like basic points of post Brexit France being the only EU member country with nuclear arms and a permanency on the UN Security Council, and then going from this into like what are the French national interests and how do what is their what is their what is the primary goal of their foreign policy to turn the security interests into european ones i just think it's a really it's a good it, it makes sense of things i think maybe i'm just re rehashing what you said phil that it makes sense of things which otherwise are quite difficult to um to understand by just basically saying they're you know this is this is the uh the the goal um for for french-led europe an independent world power equidistant from the us and and china but this needs an escape from american supremacy over european security interests and also negotiation of that relationship with germany um who obviously have a you know very large military force but no no nuclear weapons so it's um yeah it's a good it's a good it's a good short piece which i enjoyed reading Okay, let's move on to the third one, which is mine. And uh, as we're in the midst of Euro 2020, just in 2021, uh, a piece about that. This is a piece by Barney Rone, which uh, I have the link in the World News, but it may have originally been in The Guardian. Um, but it's a piece which was written before the Euros kicked off. And looking at what a circus it is and what a ridiculous idea it is to hold the Euros across uh, how many is it? 10, 12 different sites. So, you know, the European Championships hosted since 1960 have always been like the World Cup in one single country or maybe increasingly in recent years in, in you know, co-hosted by two neighboring countries. And this year, for this edition, they decided to do it across so many different countries from uh, as far as uh, Glasgow in the northwest to Baku in the southeast uh, and various other sites in between. And, you know, it's justified by, um, under the terms of it being uh, a celebration, you know, of the 60th anniversary of uh, the first European Championship. Um, but it's what's interesting about the piece is how, uh, well, two two things. One is how it's so much a product of the moment in which it was conceived, which is to say, at the early part of the 2010s, uh, which doesn't suit the reality of 2020 or even 2021. Um, and also what that says about, uh, I guess, the sort of ideology behind these tournaments and the ideology of like football administrators. So on the first point, it's that, um, you know, in the 2008 crisis really did damage to these mega events, mega sporting events, both to the Olympics, as to the World Cup, to the European Championship, because the fuel of these tournaments of these events and specifically of their organizing bodies is the bidding wars that they have between uh, between potential hosts. The thing is, after the 2008 crisis, you don't have all this cheap money, uh, which people want to spend on building stuff, especially building stadiums, new stadia, which um, like in the case of football tournaments, FIFA 
places and the very onerous requirements placed on st- on on host countries to build all these newfangled stadiums which often um, are completely redundant because they need to meet the, the fifa specifications of a certain number of seats uh services uh vip boxes etc um so without that no one wants to build a new stadium so you don't have uh, all these hosts coming forward um wanting to wanting to host these mega events unless you're maybe uh for example a petro an arab petro state who wants to do it for prestige and you have loads of fucking money to spend on it so like you can think of the upcoming 2022 world cup in qatar not a footballing nation it's a, it's a great it's a great place to have a football tournament for so for so many, for so reasons. many reasons all that all that national you know natural grass obviously that the weather is particularly during summer is ideal for for playing sports so yeah no exactly so and, and so you end up with this weird thing now with the euros um hosted across all these different places the, the other thing is that it, it also is speaks to an ideal of uh, this borderless dream and which seems a remnant from high globalization. So the idea was like, hey, fans just take Ryanair from place to place, um, which first of all, obviously is, is very expensive and probably and not accessible to most fans. Um, you know, you might take one flight to go somewhere, but not several flights across the continent to follow your team around if they make it far into the tournament. Um, but also that this idea of crossing borders easily, uh, you know, is something that was pre-Brexit, um, but very much so also pre-pandemic. And so you've ended up with this weird conception, which was not a good idea to start with, uh, and is an even more terrible idea in the context of uh, of a deglobalizing world uh, and and a pandemic. I think there is there is something that it, it kind of has worked a little to the extent that you don't have as many away fans traveling. Like you'd, it's, it is weird, but there was a, a, a game, Hungary, France in, in Budapest, which there were 61,000 fans there. I think there were like almost all Hungarian fans. The atmosphere sounded pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a difficult game to defend football. If you're a fan of this uh, social democratic game in a neoliberal yes, age, yes. It, with all the technocratic tweaks, you know, you've got five subs now, calling breaks, VAR, uh, video assistant referee, which is just shit. This fucking stupid offside rule where you get late flags. So, you know, 10 seconds later you've scored and then you have to stop celebrating. It's, it is not an easy super league. Don't even need to get started on that. It's not an easy uh, thing to defend. Um, but you know, I think you have to do it. I think you, you know, yeah, even, despite, even despite like the, the 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 scraping of the bottom of the barrel and under the barrel, the the, the floor has been scraped away. Whatever. I'm trying to belabor this idea of a lot of scraping. No, but, but, the, down. but the, the point is, is like no matter still how good. much they try to fuck with it, still good. football still manages to be good. I don't know how long that will continue. Yeah, that's the accelerating that's, the fuckery. But that's the argument. So that's the core. I mean, so that's the core argument of the piece, and it's the one which I find the least convincing because it's kind of uh, you know it's just a bit oh these evil corporations are kind of exploiting the you know the the masses game but still kind of football is plucky and um the fans make it what it is and it's just it's all a bit kind of um there is there's an interesting kind of to be honest there's an interesting kind of football is nothing without the fans say all these astroturfed kind of like uh, campaigns i mean it's a no, they're not astroturfed i mean they're like groups of ultras um you know which have often have like their own long histories um and often tied into other political issues so they're not astroturfed um mm. are they not? i'm 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 i'm, I'm sure there are ultras but I think there are like there are astroturf fan things as well 
But anyway, I think the the kind of um, the lip service. But I guess what I mean is not so much the the fan putting fans putting forward that argument, but the whole discourse that football is nothing without fans. Um, say all football bodies at the same time doing things which are completely against the interests of fans and yeah, just trying yeah. to extract as much money as possible and privileging people watching at home over people in stadium which is like fine i guess but you need obviously people in stadium to to, to create the atmosphere um yeah but i think what it does prove the euros is no matter how like football is indestructible like how no matter how badly it's organized or how terrible you think you could make it it's still a good game and so, so, something kind of can take that way. something beautiful no but so, something beautiful no. and organic emerges out of it i think, I think that, that no and, and i think that's the illusion I no 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 the no. ideology right there so it's this idea that beneath all of this there is some kind of pure core to it which no, there's no pure cure it's not pure it's it's just that it it's just that you you put you put 22 people in a field with a with a round ball and two goals and it's and a ref no and and, and no and crowds beautiful. because that's the whole point it's a popular sport in a way that n- nothing else is n- not not in its global extent not in the intensity of support uh, the meaning that people attach to it uh, and that it, yeah it seems kind of indestructible i think there is a there is a kind of discourse that is like the popular discourse, which is capitalism is ruining football, right? As if football existed somehow outside of capitalism. No, it's a it's a product of uh, the industrial age, right? Um, and it wouldn't exist outside of capitalism. I mean, maybe it will outlive capitalism, but uh, you know that that's a that's a complicated question. Um, but you can what, imagine, like, you can imagine a dystopian a dystopian sorry, sorry, future where the the world is kind of basically destroyed. And then, you know, the, 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 the kind of dust is swirling across the screen and you zoom in and what, what are people doing? They're playing football. You know, I can imagine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the human one, spirit. I can, <laughs> that exactly. It's that kind of pathetic human spirit argument, which I think is the most kind of it's the most beguiling and the most, um, I think, kind pathetic of pathetic human spirits as robot Phil. No, I mean, it's this kind of obviously, you know, I believe. I mean, it's something to be defended, but I think they're setting it up in those terms where it becomes something about defending the human spirit against evil corporations. It's a simplistic moral fable, essentially. It's not anything which is a meaningful analysis. So that, I mean, that's one thing. And I would give another kind of dystopian version of the future of football, which would be like endless kind of football all the time. That so is like, dystopian. You know, that, and that is what they're from, trying to do. That is what they're trying from to do. one to championship to another championship, to the Euros, to, I don't know, the World Cup, and it never stops. No, exactly. And that is the problem. I agree encro- with encroaching on Bunga itself. That is a dystopian vision right there. No, but th- th- that is a problem. There's football all the time. And this past year has had way too much football. That is a problem because it loses the specialness of that feeling that you have that th- every weekend you have this regular thing, which is special and not just endless, interminable football. Yeah. Just one final point, which I think to re- re- return back to the article, which is what I was trying to get at, is that not that capitalism is ruining football, which is an illogical statement, but that the way that football changes uh, speaks to the way capitalism itself is transforming and has transformed. And, you know, it, capitalism gave birth to football and it was this beautiful popular thing, which was in many times kind of antagonistic to capitalism or, you know, um, in, in various points in time, other times not. Whereas, uh, whereas today, um, I think the hyper commodification of the game is perhaps challenging the very nature of it. And yet maybe it still persists, but I, you know, I guess the, the question that this, that this poses us is like, how long can they keep, um, fucking with the game and, uh, 
kind of leading it to ever greater levels of commodification without yeah. ruining the, the the core of what it is. Well, this this I think is the the, the crucial point, and you it you happened know, a long you, time ago. You, you guys just didn't realize it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like if you're if you're a if you're a football fan, you understand what commodification means because you've seen it like continually undermine various aspects of 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 the game um and you've you know you might well have been priced out of going to see your your local team but i mean i i I take it i guess a slightly different view which is that i'm there's an eduardo galliano book soccer in sun and shadow is a really really brilliant book and he says that he's a he's a beggar for good football so it doesn't matter which team it is it doesn't really kind of matter who's playing if you if you know you play or you watch and you see these incredible things happen on the pitch that is you know that is something which is always going to draw you in and you can't you can't fully commodify that you can commodify every single thing around it and turn it into 24/7 there's always football but there's still something within the mo- within the great moments of the sport um playing or watching it's still going to be there so i i will continue to watch it whilst also thinking it's kind of shit <laughs> which is i'm, I'm going to keep watching it and thinking it's great which is what i'm going to do right now All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been another three articles. Let us know what you think. Uh, As usual, uh, catch you later. Bye-bye. Time to go and watch some football.